Demonizing the Victim It is important to stress the fact that in the Milgram experiments, the subjects thought that they were shocking innocent strangers. There was no accusation that the one being shocked was a bad person, or had done anything immoral. It should be obvious that if the average person will, at the behest of authority, inflict pain upon an innocent person, he will also inflict such pain with less hesitation and less guilt upon someone he imagines to be deserving of such pain. The U.S. military, and presumably many other militaries, have done a lot of research to determine what can be done to overcome a soldier's natural aversion to killing, so that he will kill on command. And one of the most effective ways of achieving this is to demonize and dehumanize the one he is being told to shoot. In modern wars, the governments of both sides feed their soldiers constant propaganda designed to paint the enemy as a bunch of heartless, vicious, sadistic, inhuman monsters. Ironically, this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, because such propaganda makes both sides into gangs of heartless monsters, zealously trying to exterminate enemies they do not view as being fully human. Similar tactics are used in law enforcement. The hired mercenaries of government are far more likely to inflict injustice and oppression upon someone if that person has first been dehumanized and demonized. Even the terminology used by the masters, the enforcers, and everyone else constitutes a very effective form of mind control, which alters how both enforcers and their targets perceive reality, thereby affecting how both groups behave. Such terms reinforce the premise that obedience to authority is a virtue, and that disobedience is a sin. What literally happens is that one group of people issues a command, and their enforcers impose it upon the masses. By punishing disobedience, this is what the mafia does, what street gangs do, what schoolyard bullies do, and what all governments do. The difference is that when government does it, it uses not only threats, but also indoctrination. Both of the enforcers and the general public, where the message of most thugs is usually direct and honest, do what I say or I hurt you. The government message involves a great deal of psychology and mind control, which is essential to making the state mercenaries feel righteous about inflicting such oppression on others. The controllers in government portray themselves as lawmakers, who have the right to govern society, portray their commands as laws, and portray anyone who disobeys as criminals. And, unlike mafia heavies, those who administer retribution against any who disobey the politicians are portrayed not merely as hired thugs, but as noble law enforcers, who are righteously protecting society from all the uncivilized, contemptuous lawbreakers such propaganda goes a long way, not only toward making the authoritarian enforcers carry out violence against innocent people, but also toward making them feel proud of it. They are convinced, via their authoritarian indoctrination, that they are bringing criminals to justice, thereby maintaining law and order for the benefit of society. But what they are actually doing, more often than not, is using violence to coerce everybody into obeying whatever commands the politicians issue. However immoral, arbitrary, socially or economically destructive, 
or downright idiotic those commands may be. There is a big difference in the connotations of the two terms law enforcer and politician's thug. There is no difference, however, in what they literally mean. But by persuading the enforcers that the violence they use constitutes righteous and noble law enforcement, their perceptions can be altered in such a way that they will gladly and proudly impose the ruling class's will upon their fellow man. There are as many examples of this as there are laws, but they all fall into one of two categories. Prohibitions, whereby politicians proclaim that their subjects may not do certain things. And demands, whereby politicians proclaim that their subjects must do certain things. One example of each will suffice to demonstrate the point. Prohibition. The controllers issue a decree that their subjects may not possess marijuana. That prohibition is proclaimed to be the law, and any who disobey it are deemed to be criminals. The controllers then spend huge amounts of money, taken from their subjects by way of a different law, to pay for mercenaries, guns, armored vehicles, prisons, and so on for the sole purpose of taking captive any who are caught disobeying their law. Consider the perspective of the police officer assigned the duty of enforcing that law who discovers that someone has been selling marijuana to willing customers. If the officer could objectively consider the situation, without the myth of authority distorting his perception, he would immediately see that his job is not only immoral, but utterly idiotic and hypocritical. His job being to physically capture someone for the purpose of putting that person in a cage for a long time, for doing something that was neither fraudulent nor violent. In fact, until the cop showed up, all of the people involved, grower, dealer, seller, buyer, and user, interacted peacefully and voluntarily. Furthermore, if the officer has ever consumed alcohol, he would be guilty of something morally identical to what the criminal has done. Nonetheless, he will see himself as a brave, righteous, noble enforcer as he participates in a paramilitary armed invasion of the person's home and forcibly captures and drags the criminal away from his friends and family. Then the officer will go home, have a beer, and of course, would not react kindly to anyone who tried to forcibly stop him from doing so. The only difference, which is no real difference at all, is that the politicians made up a command about one mind-altering substance, marijuana, and not the other, alcohol. As a result, the officer will truly believe that using one mind-altering substance is good, wholesome, all-American behavior, while using another is shady, immoral, and criminal and even justifies violent assault and kidnapping of the perpetrators. Demand The controllers enact a law saying that any of their subjects who own property must give to the controllers every year a payment in the amount of 2% of the value of the subject's property. The demand is called property tax, and it is proclaimed to be the law, and any who disobey it are criminals and tax cheats. The controllers then set up an organization of tax collectors to find any who disobey, to either forcibly extract money from them, or to forcibly evict them from their properties and seize such properties and give them to the controllers. 
Of course, if anyone did that without all of the authoritarian propaganda, it would be called extortion. You have to pay me a bunch of money every year or I won't let you live in your own house. And very few people, including those who now work as tax collectors, would want to be part of such a racketeering scheme. Yet when the exact same thing is done legally, not only will average people accept a job being part of such an extortion racket, but they will show disdain for any who resist it. Those who try not to be robbed are viewed as greedy tax cheats who don't want to pay their fair share, and those whose job it is to forcibly take money or property from such tax cheats usually do so with a feeling of righteousness because they truly believe that the authority of law can take what is usually an immoral act, theft, extortion, and racketeering, and transform it into something righteous and legitimate, so they can commit mass robbery, feel good about it, and feel contempt for their victims. That is the power of the most dangerous superstition. Statists often argue that taxation is not theft because governments use the tax revenue for things that are for the common good. So it's just a matter of people paying for goods and services they receive. Such an argument ignores the fundamental nature of the situation. A simple example makes the double standard obvious. Suppose a stranger came up to you and said he mowed your lawn and left an item for you at your house and now demanded that you give him $1,000, though you had never agreed to any such arrangement. Obviously, that would constitute extortion, and you would have no duty to pay even if he really had mowed your lawn and left you something. No one has the right, without your consent, to provide you some item or service when you didn't ask for it and didn't want to buy it, and then forcibly take from you whatever he declares the item or service to be worth. And yet, that is exactly what every government, at every level, always does. When targets of authoritarian aggression are successfully demonized and dehumanized, there are essentially no limits to the degree of violence and injustice which those who believe in authority will commit. For any who might still have hope that the consciences of American soldiers and law enforcers might limit the level of injustice they are willing to inflict upon complete strangers, there are plenty of real-world examples that prove otherwise. Perhaps the most well-known is the massacre at May Lai during the Vietnam War, where U.S. troops not only murdered hundreds of unarmed civilians, mostly women and children, but also sexually assaulted and tortured some, and some soldiers openly delighted in the suffering and deaths of their victims. And this was by the soldiers' own testimonies, this is what American soldiers did as a result of their loyalty to the myth of authority, combined with the demonization and dehumanization of their victims. The soldiers themselves put it perfectly bluntly, one saying they were just following orders, and another saying that most of the U.S. soldiers there didn't consider the Vietnamese human. It should be noted that there were some American soldiers who tried, with little success, to stop or limit the massacre. While this is one of the most famous examples of wartime atrocities committed by American troops, it is certainly not the only one. In fact, examples of sadistic behavior by some American soldiers keep coming to light. Whereas in the Milgram experiments, some test subjects would demonstrate verbally or by their behavior 
that they felt bad about inflicting harm upon an innocent stranger. Law enforcers and soldiers who are first taught to despise an enemy obey authoritarian commands even more eagerly, often in a way that shows that they delight in inflicting pain and death on their victims. This was plainly displayed in the images that came out of the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, showing that American troops, male and female, not only carried out the mental and physical torture, but exhibited delight and amusement at the suffering of their victims, happily posing for the camera while humiliating, assaulting, torturing, and raping their prisoners. Both the Bush and the Obama administration prevented much of the photographic evidence of this torture from being made public for fear of the effect that those images would have on the opinion of the military and the country, among Americans and foreigners alike. Though such torture was carried out at the behest of the highest levels of government, it is important to note that the ones who carried out these commands of authority clearly exhibited a sadistic enjoyment of the pain and suffering that they were inflicting on other human beings. They had been told, by someone they perceived as authority, that it was noble and righteous to hate and hurt the enemy. So they did, and they enjoyed it. The same attitude and mentality can be seen in various law enforcement actions, such as the assault on Ruby Ridge in 1992, and the raid, standoff, and eventual massacre near Waco, Texas in 1993. In neither case was authority going after someone who had actually harmed or threatened anyone else. Instead, both events involved paramilitary assaults based upon the alleged possession of illegal firearms. In the Waco incident, 80 people, including men, women, and children, eventually died after being mentally and physically tortured for weeks with sleep deprivation and CS gas, among other things. The victims were demonized to the public and to those in law enforcement and the government aggressors exhibited both contempt for their victims and enthusiasm at the thought of killing them. The same general attitude can be seen in dozens of police abuse videos depicting police enthusiastically bullying and even physically assaulting people who are not a threat to anyone, and who are not even fighting back or resisting. This is the direct result of convincing law enforcers that everyone else is beneath them, and that, as agents of authority, they have the right to have everyone else treat them like superiors, groveling before them and unquestioningly obeying their commands. The same pattern can also be seen among tax collectors and other bureaucrats. To what extent the belief in authority actually creates sadistic tendencies and to what extent it simply unleashes tendencies which were already there hardly matters. The point is that, by pretending to relieve the individual of responsibility for his own actions, and by ordering him to inflict harm on others and telling him that it is not just permissible, but virtuous to harm a particular target, the myth of authority converts millions of average, otherwise decent people into monsters and sadistic agents of evil. Whatever factors normally compel people to behave civilly and nonviolently, whether it be the individual's internal virtues, his devotion to moral principles or religious beliefs, or simply his concern about what others might think of him or might do to him, are easily defeated and overridden by the belief in authority. In short, 
the most effective way to shut down the humanity and decency of any individual is to teach him to respect and obey authority. What the Badge Means Those who claim to act under the authority of government usually go out of their way to make it clear that they are doing so. When a soldier dons his military attire, marches in formation, or gets into a military vehicle, when a cop puts on his uniform and gets into a car marked police, when a plain-clothed government agent, whether from the FBI, IRS, U.S. Marshals, or any other agency, shows his badge or announces his official title, he is making a very specific statement, which can be summed up as follows. I am not acting as a thinking, responsible, independent human being and should not be treated as such. I am not personally responsible for my actions because I am not acting from my own free will or my own judgment of right and wrong. I am instead acting as a tool of something superhuman, something with the right to rule you and control you. As such, I can do things that you can't. I have rights that you don't. You must do as I say, submit to my commands, and treat me as your superior. Because I am not a mere human being, I have risen above that through my unquestioning obedience and loyalty to my masters. I have become a piece of the superhuman entity of government and act on its authority. As a result, the rules of human morality do not apply to me, and my actions should not be judged by the usual standards of human behavior. This bizarre, mystical, cult-like belief is held by every law enforcer in the world. It is horribly dangerous for anyone to imagine himself to have an exemption from the basic rules of right and wrong. Yet that is exactly what every agent of government imagines. Despite the fact that soldiers and law enforcers usually display their official uniforms with great pride, what they are actually doing is publicly displaying the fact that they are delusional, have a completely warped and demented view of reality, and have betrayed the very thing that made them human, their free will and personal responsibility that goes along with it. Every person who claims to act on behalf of authority is demonstrating that he has accepted an utterly ridiculous lie that his position, his badge, his office dramatically changes what behaviors are moral and what behaviors are immoral. The idea is patently insane, but is rarely recognized as such because even the victims of the enforcers share in this delusion. Noble Motives Evil Actions It is important again to stress the fact that, of those who become law enforcers and soldiers, most do so out of a desire to fight for justice. Nonetheless, because of their belief in authority, their noble intentions often end up being used to harm the innocent and protect the guilty. Because an officer is supposed to enforce the law, and a soldier is supposed to follow orders, their own values and intentions get trumped by the agendas of those giving the orders. Notwithstanding the military recruiting propaganda encouraging young men and women to join up to fight for truth and justice, the true job of a soldier is to kill whomever the masters tell him to kill. It is as simple as that. How many Americans would, on their own, 
choose to go to foreign lands and kill complete strangers. Very few. How many Americans on their own, if they were in a foreign land, would feel justified going door to door interrogating strangers at gunpoint, invading and searching their homes because they thought some truly bad people might be in the area? Very few. These are actions which almost every individual's sense of morality would tell him are wrong. But when someone voluntarily joins an authoritarian military, he intentionally shuts off his own judgment and conscience in favor of simply doing as he is told. Though soldiers sometimes use legitimate force, such as combating aggressors and invaders, they also routinely act as aggressors and invaders themselves. It would be impossible for a government military to function any other way. Imagine an army going door to door, politely asking each homeowner for permission to cross his land. Simply calling the situation war causes the believers in government to imagine that the usual standards of humanity and behavior do not apply. Under the excuse of necessity, soldiers trespass, steal, intimidate, threaten, assault, interrogate, torture, and murder, and they do this even against people they consider to be their allies. The military invasion and occupation of Iraq by the mercenaries of the U.S. government, which was purportedly done to defend the people of Iraq, was an example of large-scale aggression and coercion, and thus was immoral, even if it displaced a regime guilty of even the worst level of intimidation and murder the regime of Saddam Hussein. Yet, the supposed evil of the enemy is often cited as justification for authorization and coercion. In truth, today and throughout history, large-scale violence against innocents has always been done in the name of fighting for freedom or fighting against injustice. Even when the Nazis invaded Poland, they first staged a series of false flag events and propaganda stunts, collectively known as Operation Himmler, so that they could pretend that the invasion was a justifiable act of self-defense. The truth is that, even when the evil of an enemy regime is easy to see, making the overall fight seem righteous to one side, the violence committed by authoritarian militaries is never directed only at the actual aggressors on the other side. The structure and methodology of the hierarchical armies make it so that the innocents are always victimized in one way or another. And not just by accident, by design. The pack mentality that is such a big part of patriotism makes this unavoidable. In World War II, American troops saw the Krauts, the Germans, and the Japs, the Japanese, as the enemy rather than seeing the enemy as those individuals who actually committed the acts of aggression against innocent people, a concept which would require each soldier to constantly use his own individual perception and moral judgment to assess each situation as he confronted it, which is incompatible with an authoritarian chain of command. Of course, of the people who fit the definition of the Krauts or the Japs, Many played no part in the conflict, aside from funding it through paying taxes, as discussed below. But on both sides in every war, government militaries and the propaganda they use always target and demonize a general category of people rather than just individuals who have actually initiated violence.
The result is that huge demographic groups end up being ordered to subjugate or exterminate each other, making it so that neither side is ever the good guy in any war between nations. As both militaries always use violence against innocent people, as well as against other soldiers. Perhaps one of the most heinous examples of this was the dropping of nuclear bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which constituted by far the two worst individual acts of terrorism and mass murder in history. Together they resulted in the deaths of around 200,000 civilians, about 70 times worse than the deaths of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. The admitted goal was to inflict fear, pain, and death on a population of an entire country in order to coerce the ruling class of that country to bend to the will of another ruling class. Ironically, this fits perfectly with the United States government's own definition of terrorism, except that the definition conveniently exempts acts that are legal and or committed by governments. If those in government advocate and carry out activities that are intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, or to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, then it is considered to be legitimate and just. If anyone else does the exact same thing, it is terrorism. See Section 2331 of Title 18 of the United States Code. As an aside, the existence of nuclear weapons is entirely the result of the belief in authority. Unlike many weapons, it is impossible to use them for purely defensive purposes. The only reason the nuclear bomb was invented and manufactured in the first place was because of an authoritarian, nationalistic, pack mentality idea that it is possible, and righteous, to be at war with an entire country, and that, therefore, indiscriminately exterminating thousands of people at once can be justifiable. Being a member of a government military requires one to contribute to anti-human acts, even if only indirectly, regardless of whatever noble motives the individual may have had for joining the armed forces. The reason is simple. Acting based on one's own perception and judgment, and abiding by one's own conscience and one's own sense of right and wrong, is utterly incapable with being a member of any government military. Sadly, the result is that both sides of every war are wrong in that both initiate violence against innocents. At the same time, both sides of every war are also right, in that they each condemn the other side for initiating violence against innocents. In short, as long as there are soldiers willing to subjugate themselves to a claimed authority, and even commit murder when it tells them to, lasting peace will be impossible. Those who fight for any government even if they believe they are fighting for their country, can never achieve freedom and justice. Because a ruling class, by its very nature, never wants freedom and justice, even for its own subjects, or it would cease to exist. However noble their motives and however courageous their actions, ultimately, the only thing government soldiers can ever achieve is subjugation and domination. Many Americans are under the impression that U.S. soldiers are allowed to, or even required to, disobey an illegal or immoral order, a belief which allows Americans to imagine that the U.S. government mercenaries are fundamentally different from the mercenaries of other regimes. The grain of truth behind this belief is that the U.S. soldiers are, at least in theory, 
required to disobey unlawful orders. But the rule says nothing about morality. And because rulers define what is lawful, ultimately, the rules do not mean much. In combat, nearly everything every military does constitutes violent aggression. And nearly every order a soldier receives is an immoral, even if lawful, order. Whether it is to trespass on private property, blow up a bridge, block a road, disarm civilians, detain and interrogate people at random, or kill complete strangers, a soldier who disobeys such commands would almost certainly be court-martialed. The idea that one should sometimes disobey orders, whether because they are immoral or unlawful, while fine in principle, goes directly against the entire concept of authority and against the methods used to train soldiers to be blindly obedient tools of whatever regime they serve. Even when the rules of engagement are only to fire if fired upon, that is still often unjustified. When someone commits aggression, the target of that aggression has the right to use whatever force is necessary to stop the aggressor. This means that in a lot of situations, shooting at a soldier, including American soldiers, is inherently justified. Killing someone for defending himself against aggressors is murder, even when the aggressors are U.S. soldiers. And almost every soldier routinely commits immoral acts of aggression, believing that commands from authority make it okay for him to do so. If any soldier actually took seriously the idea that he should disobey an immoral order, the first thing he would do would be to quit the military. Those who act as mercenaries for government even if they do so with the best of intentions, will always be a part of a machine that commits aggression as often as, or more often than, it defends the innocent. That being the case, nearly every combat soldier does things which would justify the use of defensive violence against him. However, as invading armies always do, the American military commanders label anyone who resists their acts of aggression as an enemy combatant, an insurgent, or a terrorist. When aggression is committed in the name of authority, many then view any act of self-defense against such aggression as a sin, as much as American authoritarians might be outraged at the suggestion. The truth is that many thousands of people the world over had good cause to shoot at American soldiers. When a person who has not harmed or threatened anyone in his own home, minding his own business, and heavily armed thugs break down his door, point machine guns at him and his family, threatening and ordering them around. The homeowner has the absolute right to protect himself and his family by any means necessary, including killing the armed intruders. The average American, if he were the victim of such an assault by foreign mercenaries, would feel perfectly justified in using whatever violence was necessary to repel the attackers. But if his fellow Americans were the ones committing such assaults in a foreign land, the same American having been steeped in authority worship and pack mentality, will support the troops and will cheer when American soldiers murder a homeowner who attempts to forcibly resist such aggression and thuggery. Authoritarian military actions are never purely defensive. When governments declare war, it is never to defend the innocent or to preserve freedom, though that is always the stated purpose. When governments engage in war, it is always to protect or add to the territory or other resources controlled by that government, the ruling class. By its very nature, 
does not even want its own subjects to be free, much less the subjects of some foreign ruler. As a result, the one who dies in combat is often said to have given his life for his country. In reality, those who die in war are simply resources spent by tyrants in various turf wars with other competing gangs of tyrants. The people are fed propaganda about heroism, sacrifice, and patriotism to hide the fact that governments never enter wars to serve justice or freedom. They do it to serve their own power. An objective examination of history makes this obvious. Even one of the most apparently justifiable military endeavors in history, the Allies in World War II, fighting against the Axis powers, while it resulted in the defeat of the third worst mass murderer in history, Adolf Hitler, it also resulted in an even worse mass murder, Joseph Stalin, essentially being given half of Europe by the rulers of the Allied nations. The motive of most American soldiers who fought in the war was obviously to protect the good from evil, but the motives of those who commanded them, and therefore the actual results of the brave soldiers' efforts, was nothing more than authoritarian conquest and power. In World War II, one could have at least suggested, with some imagination, the possibility of an invasion of the United States, and thereby claim that it was an act of self-defense because national security was at stake. But most of U.S. military operations have involved no direct threat at all to the United States. Thirty-some thousand U.S. Americans died in the Korean War. No one imagined that North Korea was going to invade the U.S. Fifty-some thousand Americans died in the Vietnam War. No one imagined that North Vietnam was going to invade the U.S. And no one imagined that the armies of Iraq or Afghanistan were going to invade the U.S. The excuse for such conflicts has always been a vague cause such as fighting communism, or even the more ethical excuse of having a war on terror, which is made more ironic by the fact that the terrorist tactics were and continue to be routinely used by U.S. forces. The sad irony is that the American ruling class, because of the legitimacy its victims imagine it to have, is the only gang actually capable of conquering and subjugating the American people. The gigantic military machine and all of the war games it is engaged in, rather than providing a shred of real protection for the American public, is what created most existing foreign threats and what is still used as the excuse to justify the oppression of Americans by their own government, via the Orwellian named Patriot Act, among other things. The popular bumper sticker that says, If you love your freedom, thank a veteran, is a continuing symptom of the pack mentality, state-worshipping propaganda that ruling classes feed to their subjects so that the masters will continue to have pawns to play their sadistic, destructive power games. Even when a slave master fights to prevent some other slave master from stealing his slaves, he is still no friend of the slaves themselves. It is quite understandable that someone who has risked his life, gone through hell, harmed or killed other human beings, possibly including innocence, and suffered physical or emotional trauma as a result, would be reluctant to accept that all his courage, his suffering, and the damage he inflicted on others ultimately served only the schemes of megalomaniacs. However, even some of the most famous military personalities in history have eventually come to the knowledge that governments engage in war, not for any noble purpose, but for the profits and power, 
Major General Smedley Butler, who at the time of his death in 1940 was the most declared U.S. Marine in history, wrote a book titled War is a Racket that criticized the military-industrial complex, saying that war is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many, even going so far as describing his own military service as the actions of a high-class muscleman, a racketeer, and a gangster. Likewise, General Douglas MacArthur opined that military expansion is driven by an artificially induced psychosis of war hysteria and an incessant propaganda of fear. General MacArthur also said the following, The powers in charge keep us in a perpetual state of fear, keep us in a continuous stampede of patriotic fervor with the cry of grave national emergency. Always there has been some terrible evil to gobble us up if we did not blindly rally behind the furnishing of the exorbitant sums demanded. Yet, in retrospect, these disasters seem never to have happened, seem never to have been quite real. Of course, to criticize war as a racket which benefits only the ruling class is not to say that the ruling class on the other side is not also evil or should not be resisted. The atrocities committed by the enforcers of the regimes of Stalin, Mao, Hitler, Lenin, Pol Pot, and many others were extremely serious, and the use of defensive violence against the acts of aggression committed by the agents of such regimes was certainly justified. But authoritarian warfare pits pawn against pawn in large-scale bloody combat, which covers huge geographical areas always victimizing civilian populations in the process, while the ruling class on both sides watch from a safe distance. Further evidence that war is never about ideals or principles is the fact that the U.S. government has often waged war against tyrants it put into place, such as Manuel Noriega and Saddam Hussein. An even more blatant example of how war is not about principles is the fact that at the beginning of World War II, Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union were sworn enemies of the United States. By the end of that war, the psychotic mass murderer was referred to as Uncle Joe by the United States government propagandists and was treated as a noble ally. Stalin's crimes against humanity, resulting in tens of millions of deaths, went largely unmentioned in the U.S. at the time. It is absurd to claim that the U.S. government decided to enter World War II based on any moral principle or to defeat evil. It is important to note what does and what does not occur in traditional international warfare. Competing ruling classes, including the American rulers, are content to watch their representative pawns slaughtering each other by the thousands. But it has long been the official policy of many governments, including the U.S. government, not to attempt to kill foreign rulers, i.e. the ones most responsible for making the war happen. In truth, the most moral, the most rational, and the most cost-effective means of defense against any invading authority is the assassination of those who commanded it. Targeting governments instead of their loyal enforcers would serve humanity wonderfully, not only ending most violent conflicts a lot more quickly, but creating a huge deterrent to any megalomaniac tempted to start conflicts in the first place. Yet there is an open, mutual, standing agreement between most high-level tyrants that, while it is okay to play games with the lives of their subjects, they will rarely target each other 
And so, over and over again, huge numbers of soldiers march into battlefields to kill each other, while the real enemies of humanity, the rulers on both sides, remain out of harm's way. Thus the lives of the well-intentioned soldiers, the brave government enforcers who loyally follow orders to the bitter end, are utterly wasted in endeavors which, by design, ultimately achieve real freedom and justice for no one. And if a soldier manages to recognize and target the ones most responsible for injustice and oppression, those who wear the label of government on both sides of every war, he is condemned as a traitor and a terrorist. Proudly committing evil. Whether it is a soldier or some low-level bureaucrat, the job of all law enforcers is to forcibly inflict the will of the ruling class upon the general public. Nonetheless, most imagine that as they do so, they are serving the people. Of course, the idea of serving someone by initiating violence against him is ridiculous. Consider the oxymoron of the absurdly named Internal Revenue Service, which does nothing but rob hundreds of millions of people of trillions of dollars every year. Rather than ever considering the possibility that what they do on a regular basis, participating in a system of aggression and coercion, is immoral and uncivilized, most state mercenaries, from the paper pusher to the hired killer, simply say they are just doing their jobs. And imagine that that absolves them of all personal responsibility for their actions and the results of those actions. This, above all else, has been the downfall of human society. Most of the evil and injustice committed by human beings is not the result of greed or malice or hatred. It is the result of people doing what they were told, people following orders, people doing their jobs. In short, most of man's inhumanity to man is a direct result of the belief in authority. The damage done by the merely obedient is just as real and just as destructive as if they had done it from personal malice. Whether an old lady is robbed by an armed street thug or by a well-dressed, well-educated tax collector makes no difference, morally or in practical terms. Whether a family in Iraq is killed by soldiers of Saddam Hussein or killed by soldiers of the United States government makes no difference, morally or in practical terms. Whether someone's personal choices are coercively controlled by a neighborhood thug or by police makes no difference morally or in practical terms. The only difference is that the authoritarian thug, as a result of his delusional belief in the mythical entity called government, refuses to accept personal responsibility for his own actions. His belief in the most dangerous superstition renders him unable to recognize evil as evil. In fact, he will feel proud of his loyal obedience to his masters as he spends day after day inflicting hardship and suffering upon innocent people because he has been taught for all of his life that when evil becomes law, it ceases to be evil and becomes good. In truth, if anything is a sin, it is blind obedience to authority. Acting as an enforcer for government amounts to spiritual suicide, actually worse than physical suicide, because every authoritarian enforcer not only shuts off the free will and ability to judge which makes him human, thus killing his own humanity, but also leaves his body intact, to be used by tyrants as a tool for oppression. To be a law enforcer is to willingly change oneself from a person into a robot. 
a robot which is then given to some of the most evil people in the world, to be used to dominate and subjugate the human race. Wearing the uniform of a soldier or the badge of law enforcer is not a reason for pride. It should be a cause for great shame at having forsaken one's own humanity in favor of becoming a pawn of oppressors. Part 3C, The Effects on the Targets Proud to be Robbed One of the more bizarre results of the belief in authority is that it causes its victims of government aggression to feel obligated to be victimized, and causes them to feel bad if they avoid being victimized. A prime example is a citizen who proclaims that he is proud to pay taxes, even if one believes that some of what he surrenders is used to fund useful things, such as roads helping the poor, etc. To be proud of having been threatened and coerced into funding such things is still strange. Pride in being a law-abiding taxpayer is not the result of having helped people, which the person could have done far more effectively on a voluntary basis. The pride comes from having faithfully obeyed the commands of a perceived authority. By analogy, a man may feel good about having freely given to someone in need, but he would not take pride in getting robbed by a poor man. Probably the only situation in which one brags about having been forced to do something occurs in the context of one who believes he is obligated to obey a perceived authority. Having been trained to view obedience as a virtue, people want to feel good about surrendering what they earn to government, and so, with the help of political propaganda, they hallucinate that their contributions are actually helping society as a whole. They speak as if paying taxes means giving back to society or investing in the country. Such rhetoric, as common as it is, is logically nonsensical, since it implies that every one of the individuals who make up society and the country somehow each owes a debt to the group as a whole, but is owed nothing. What people are actually doing when they pay taxes is giving money not to society or the country, but to the politicians who make up the ruling class, to spend however they please. The implication, as odd as it is, is that people can benefit as a whole by every one of the people being robbed individually. The idea that the common good is better served by politicians spending everyone's money than it would be served by each person spending his own money is strange, to say the least. Recently, the lie of taxes serving the common good has become more transparent as governments have spent astronomical amounts of money on things which obviously serve the elite at the expense of society and humanity. This would include warmongering, direct multi-billion dollar redistribution schemes benefiting the richest people in the world, bailouts, and government takeovers of various segments of the economy, e.g. healthcare industry, among other things. In fact, there is almost nothing average people could financially support that would be less helpful to society and humanity in general than paying taxes. Whatever things a person views as worthwhile, schools, roads, defense, helping the poor, etc., he could just as easily support without going through politicians and government. Yet, many people specifically express pride in having surrendered the fruits of their labor to their masters, having paid their taxes. Consider how someone would be viewed who proudly proclaimed, I lied on my tax return, avoiding giving $3,000 to the government, and gave $3,000 to a really good charity instead. 
many people would still condemn such a person for his criminal disloyalty to the masters, even if the person's actions better served humanity than paying his taxes would have. This is because the pride expressed by many people does not come from helping humanity, but from obeying authority. There is little or no chance that anyone would voluntarily contribute his own wealth to every one of the programs and schemes now funded via government. And if he hands over money only because some law or other authority compelled him to, and then expresses pride in having done so, he is in essence boasting about having been forcibly dominated, precisely the way a thoroughly indoctrinated slave might take pride in serving his master well. There is a big difference between feeling good about having voluntarily supported some worthy cause and taking pride in being subjugated. Instead of being offended at the insult and injustice of being coercively controlled and exploited, in fact, instead of even recognizing that as injustice, many victims of government oppression feel profound loyalty to their controllers. Proud to be controlled if a slave can be convinced that he should be a slave, that his enslavement is both proper and legitimate, that he is the rightful property of his master and that he has an obligation to produce as much as possible for his master, then he does not need to be physically oppressed. In other words, enslaving the mind makes enslaving the body unnecessary. And that is exactly what the belief in authority does. It teaches people that it is morally virtuous, that they surrender their time, effort, and property, as well as their freedom and control over their own lives, to a ruling class. Many people express pride at being law-abiding taxpayers, which means only that they do what the politicians tell them to do, and give the politicians money. When confronted with the idea that it is wrong for them to be forcibly deprived of the fruits of their labor, even if it is done legally, such people often vehemently defend those who continue to rob them, insisting that such robbery is essential to human civilization. Of course, they do not use the term robbery to describe the situation, though they are well aware of what would be done to them if they refuse to pay. Likewise, when one person objects to the level of taxation or other forcible control being inflicted upon him by those in government, Others who are also being oppressed will often condemn the one who is objecting, telling him that if he does not like how he is being treated, he should leave the country. Maligning a fellow victim for complaining about it is a sure sign that a person actually takes pride in his own enslavement. Frederick Douglass, a former slave, witnessed and described that exact phenomenon among his fellow slaves, many of whom were proud of how hard they worked for their masters and how faithfully they did what they were told. From their perspective, a runaway slave was a shameful thief, having stolen himself from the master. Douglas described how thoroughly indoctrinated many slaves were, to the point where they truly believed that their own enslavement was just and righteous. I have found that to make a content slave, it is necessary to make a thoughtless one, it is necessary to darken his moral and mental vision and, as far as possible, to annihilate the power of reason. He must be able to detect no inconsistencies in slavery. He must be made to feel that slavery is right, and he can be brought to that only when he ceases to be a man.
Though slavery is no longer practiced openly, the mentality of loyal subservience remains. Most people today detect no inconsistencies in allowing a ruling class to forcibly extort and control everyone else, and in fact feel that such extortion and oppression is right, to the point where many feel actual shame if they are caught keeping what they earn and running their own lives. It is one thing to feel shame at having been caught stealing, or defrauding, or committing aggression, but it is quite another for someone to feel shame about having done something which, if not for politician decrees, laws, he would have seen as perfectly permissible. Such shame does not come from the immorality of the act itself. It comes only from the imagined immorality of disobeying authority, i.e. breaking the law. When, for example, the average citizen is caught cheating on his taxes, or not having a registration sticker on his car, or smoking marijuana, or doing any of the thousands of other things which do not constitute aggression against anyone else, but which have nonetheless been declared illegal by the ruling class, there is usually some feeling of guilt in the person's own mind. Without a feeling of being obligated to obey, being caught and punished by agents of government would be regarded in the same way as being bitten by a dog would be regarded, as an unpleasant consequence to be avoided, but having no moral element to it at all. Instead, most people feel, at least to some extent, that being caught committing a victimless crime indicates some sort of moral failing in themselves, because they did not do as they were told. The desire to have the approval of authority is extremely powerful in almost everyone, to a degree that they themselves do not even realize. The ubiquitous message of authoritarianism has a psychological impact far deeper than most people imagine, as the Milgram experiments demonstrated. Nearly everyone experiences dramatic emotional stress and discomfort any time he comes into conflict with authority, and will go to great lengths, no matter what acts of evil he must commit in order to earn the approval of his masters. Even the terminology people use illustrates how effectively they have been trained to feel morally obligated to obey authority. This can be seen in such simple phrases as, you're not allowed to do that, or even, you can't do that, when referring to some behavior that has been declared illegal by the ruling class. Such phrases do not simply express a potential adverse consequence, but also imply that, because some act has been forbidden by the masters, committing this act is bad, not allowable, or even impossible, i.e., you can't do that. Looking at the statistical facts demonstrates the power of this belief in authority. In the United States, about 100,000 IRS employees extort about 2 million victims. Those being robbed outnumber the robbers by about 2,000 to 1. This could never be accomplished by brute force alone. It continues only because of those being robbed feel a duty to be robbed, and imagine such robberies to be legitimate and valid. The same is true of many other laws, which are generally obeyed even though the enforcers are always hugely outnumbered by those they seek to control. The high levels of compliance do not come so much from fear of punishment as from the feeling among those being controlled that they have a moral obligation to cooperate with their own subjugation.